We would like to acknowledge that Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Hello everyone, I'm Fiorella Pinillos with SFU's Fan City Office of Community Engagement, and thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Below the Radar. On this episode, our host Am Johal sits down with Tiffany Muller Myrdal, a senior lecturer in the Department of Gender, Sexuality and Women's Studies and the Urban Studies program. As a feminist geographer, a lot of Tiffany's work and research looks at urban inequalities and inclusion strategies, especially those targeting LGBTQ2S people and women. Am and Tiffany talk about why this work is necessary for our cities and urban places, and the way in which Tiffany challenges her students to think critically in their work. We're really excited to have Tiffany muller Murdell here with us from SFU Urban Studies and Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies. Thank you for joining us, Tiffany. Thanks so much for inviting me. Tiffany, you've done a lot of work over the years in your doctoral research and in terms of teaching in, in urban studies, but also had involvement with uh, women transforming cities. And wondering if you can talk a little bit about your work in feminist geography and broadly in urban studies. Sure. I often kind of joke about the fact that I'm a feminist geographer with people because people don't necessarily think of putting those two words together. So I usually explain that I am interested in social change and the city and who has power in the city and, and how cities come to be and the shape that they take and how that changes over time, who's part of the planning process and who's not, who's left out of that. An easy place for people to imagine The combination of feminism and geography is to think about safety in cities and how cities are safe for some and less safe for others. Um, and yeah, I was lucky to work with Alan Woodsworth and a lot of other fabulous feminists and urbanists in when I first arrived in Vancouver, right after Women Transforming Cities was launched in 2012 and worked with them for a couple of years through the position that I had at the time as the Ruth Wynne Woodward Jr. Chair in the Gender, Sexuality, Women's Studies Department. We've had uh, some people who've worked in the the office, Fiorella Pinios, who did her master's in urban studies at SFU, and, and she's talked with me quite a bit about when she had her first child and she was uh, pregnant with her second child, just moving through the city, getting onto a bus, and how decisions are made around planning and how moving through the city and safety being one thing, but it's, it's actually a myriad of decisions that are made about day-to-day -day life that affect people in a dis proportionate way. And, and wondering if you can talk a bit more about your work with women transforming cities and the kind of approach that was being taken in terms of the, the policy development there. Yeah. Women transforming cities has been really important in bringing questions of women's particular needs to the table at City of Vancouver and really helping to shape a conversation around how it is the built form, as you say. It's about sidewalks and the dip in the sidewalk. I'm forgetting the planning term, um, but you know whether people who are using different kind of mobility aids or have a stroller can get from the street to the sidewalk. Everything from that to policies in terms of how we name streets, who's visible in the urban landscape. And so, Some of the early work uh, in Women Transforming Cities involved things like setting a conversation, setting an agenda, and then turning that into the, the first hot pink paper campaign, which launched in the municipal election of 2013, I think. 
And so that was an opportunity for Women Transforming Cities to bring a bunch of partners together and talk about what are the key issues under a series of different topics like environment, like violence, and ask candidates to make a pledge and then be able to kind of hold them accountable. And Women Transforming Cities redid that hot pink paper last in the last municipal election. So it's been a really important policy engagement tool. And it brings, you know, young people and people who haven't been involved in the planning process or the decision making process to the table in ways that they haven't been before. And I imagine when you look at the decision-making process in terms of the hierarchy of how institutions work, particular professions like engineering or planning, um, there are these structures that when you look at it from the perspective of equity, diversity, inclusion, there's uh, particular places within the structures that there's uh, big lenses that aren't being considered or at the table when some of those what would be called technical decisions are being made that have highly political and social consequences. Yeah, absolutely. I think my dad is a civil engineer, so I grew up going to a lot of bridges uh, that would be under construction. And one of the kind of mantras in my household was the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. So he looked at the world through a very kind of quote unquote objective lens that there would be transportation users and the transportation field would meet their needs. And I think that is what misses the point, partly, that we forget about the ways in which different users have different needs. Yeah, so the methodologies of planning in general, which has a kind of relationship to a kind of linear rationalism, which also consequently has a connection to colonialism uh, here as well. Wondering uh, when you're teaching your own students in an urban studies program, which is different than a planning program, how are these things interrogated and deconstructed? It's a good question. I think every faculty brings their own particular expertise to that question. And I think at SFU Urban Studies, it's an exciting place because it is so interdisciplinary and people have such diverse backgrounds that they can draw from. I do think that everybody asks students to really unpack some of the histories and sort of normal codes. I teach a lot of research methods in both urban studies and gender sexuality women's studies. And part of my job, I think, is to ask folks to not just think about how we can answer a question best, but what kinds of values we bring to that question asking and data collection and data analysis process. When you see students today as well, they're carrying a lot of stresses from student loans to uh, the affordability questions you're probably discussing uh, in class. You have the climate emergency going on. These questions about student wellness and resilience come up often. I know you've been doing some work around that. And if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I guess I think about it in the way in which my teaching has changed over time. When I was teaching at the University of Lethbridge, many years ago now. We were in a kind of traditional seminar setting. I was asking students to read complicated and difficult texts, and they were doing that work. And one of the sort of questions they had in return was, and now what? What do you want us to do with this? And so that pushed me to really think about how much engagement I actually do in the classroom. I thought of myself as a pretty engaged teacher at the time, but I decided at that point that I really wanted to ask students to rethink how their work could be relevant outside the classroom. And so that was actually a, the moment that I came to SFU and learned about City Studio, which I think had maybe just been launched. 
and um, decided that I wanted to take the opportunity to try and get more student opportunities to see their work mattering outside the class and not kind of dying in the classroom. And I find that that type of tool building helps the notion of resilience, helps students see that what they're thinking about, what they're reading, what they're asking questions, critical questions of, can really have a life beyond just that 13-week session in the semester. Now, when you were doing your graduate research, you were working with a lot of different communities. When I first met you, you were doing some public programming. And wondering if you can talk a little bit about the doctoral research you were doing at the time. My doctoral research was working uh, on questions of leisure in the city, and I used the Women's National Basketball Association as a case study. So I was working with lesbian fan communities and trying to understand the WNBA's sort of, please come and be a fan, but don't be a lesbian, which would be really interesting to revisit, actually, because I think they have a new embracing, as I you know, kind of watch from a distance now. Anyway, I'm not sure whether we've moved from tolerance to acceptance sort of thing. When I was in Lethbridge, I started an oral history project with LGBTQ folks, uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans folks who had lived in the city for at least five years. And part of my interest was to kind of write the historical record to show that queer marginalized people whose voices had not been part of the historical record could be part of the notion of how Lethbridge came to be as a city, and also to talk with folks about how they see their city changing over time. Lethbridge in you know southern Alberta is a really interesting place in part because it's a very it's actually very culturally diverse, very racially diverse. But anecdotally, and in my own experience, it's a very invisible kind of racial diversity. In part because it's a very suburban landscape and people drive everywhere. It's also incredibly windy. So even though there is a bicycling community, it's just the ways in which pedestrianism and cycling and things that happen in larger, less windy places has a very different visibility. Mm -hmm. And in coming to SFU and being in a city like Vancouver, uh, how have you engaged in urban issues here through your research and just day-to-day -day life, I guess? Yeah, I mean, it's impossible to get away from the housing crisis, of course. As a renter myself, I am very grateful for a great landlord, but that infiltrates everyday life. I am a persistent taker of Talk Vancouver surveys. So for those who aren't aware, that's one of the engagement tools that the city of Vancouver has. And just responded to one yesterday about rental housing in Vancouver. And I'm not sure how much it really matters, but it is an outlet to say what an impact it has on my psyche, at least. I think I tend to do urban engagement through my teaching. So things like um, participating in the Vancouver Planning Commission's A City for All, getting students involved in women transforming cities, different kinds of engagement pieces like that. Yeah, I just got back from Montreal just a couple of weeks ago and, and visiting a project called Batiment Set, uh, Building 7, and where uh, a group of activists uh, squatted a building. This began negotiating with the city and, and a very kind of grassroots approach to taking over space to stop a condominium project. And there is this kind of history and culture of community organizing 
uh, in Montreal that still maintains a kind of edge, an aspect of being able to negotiate with the city. Uh, the alternative in, in Vancouver is that you you see tent cities and other forms of occupying space um, happen, but the rules and the laws that are in place, particularly on private land, you know, very much just requires uh, a complaint from the landlord and the police to remove people on public land. It's a much uh, lengthier process. So there isn't sort of the same sort of legislative toolbox than if you were in Hamburg or Berlin or another place where Scotting culture has really advanced the capacity for uh, groups on the margins and periphery to really uh, win advances uh, in a way. There's a strong history of community organizing in Vancouver, of course, but in a way, my reading of it, and I I share this with people, you know, half-jokingly, but kind of half-true, which is, you know, there's a form of corruption that functions in every city, and in Montreal, the corruption uh, slows the city down, and as a result, it's actually more affordable. In Vancouver, the corruption makes the city go faster, and money flows through it faster, and so it's more expensive uh, as a, as a result. That sounds um, really accurate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think ownership, land ownership, and, and the way in which that is an outcome of colonialism is so foundational to how we look at the world here. And, I, you know, activism is shaped by its local histories. And I, I think what you've described is just a really important distinction between Montreal and Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, uh, sort of as a follow-up to your, your work uh, with women transforming cities and your current research, we're looking at policy uh, making in cities from with a gender lens on it. Where do you see uh, cities making advances or that are doing interesting things or where you'd like to see policy making go in a way that's far more inclusive than it is right now? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I can think of a few different responses. One refers to the, forgetting the name of this, some of the ways in which different cities have come together to sign on to kind of gender equality. And and they look to the sort of low-hanging fruit options. And one of those low-hanging fruit options is how to make it safe for women to use transportation and become more mobile in the city. And so one of the responses for immediate solution is to create women-only buses. And, you know, I teach this in my classes, and some students are very excited about this option because they are persistently harassed when they take the bus or the SkyTrain, and they want to get where they're going safely. Other students say, yes, we'd like to get to where we're going safely, but how is that going to solve the problem in the long run? And I think that is the crux of the issue. It seems like an immediate response, and what we know about policy responses is that once they're in place, they're very hard to change. And yet creating women-only buses, you know, creates a whole host of other problems like, well, what do you do when you have a male child who you're traveling with, for example? How does this split families up? And then it doesn't actually address the problem, which is harassment of women in public spaces. So I think that's one uh, issue. But I think there are lots of exciting directions. The Metropolis report that came out, I think, in November of last year, October, uh, Women in Cities International, which is an organization I'm on the board of, 
they did the work around that and did the kind of desk research to look at what kinds of policies are in place, what sort of the best practices, and Metropolis has put out a recent call to do the follow-up implementation piece on that. So I think there is good work happening. The city of Vancouver passed the gender equity strategy. I'm getting the name wrong. Women's equity strategy, I think, January of 2018. And uh, it was funded strategically during the Women Deliver Conference. And I think one of the things that's important about that, it was brought into conversation with the trans and gender variant inclusion work that's being done so that this equity and inclusion piece can be thought of in a, in a broader sense. I think that's a really important set of work. The city is making changes at basic levels like how they collect data. They're changing the ways that they collect census data, for example. And yet we have a long way to go, and I think everybody agrees on that point. Mm-hmm. In, you know, in, in urban centers like uh, Montreal, Toronto, uh, Vancouver, because of the density and diversity that's there, oftentimes on this social policy front, there tends to be more progressive policy development uh, happening, not always, but often, but in suburban and rural areas, it tends to lag a little bit behind. But I'm wondering if you can sort of draw on some of your uh, observations related to either, you know, suburbs of Vancouver and rural areas where people are doing interesting things or where places that need to be kind of improved upon based on experiences of uh, this urban policy development and places where things seems to be pointing in a direction that, that has more inclusion. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I'm involved in a project looking at Again, queer experience, LGBTQ2S experience in the suburbs. It's a three-city project, Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal. And Vancouver, in the kind of early data collection, Vancouver seems a bit like an outlier, or meaning not Vancouver, but very importantly, the municipalities around Vancouver. The project is looking at Burnaby, Surrey, and New West. And the kinds of activism among queer folks that are happening in those municipalities is seems quite distinct from what's happening in Montreal and in Toronto. One of the things that has come up in those focus groups and interviews is the importance of the rainbow crosswalk. And, you know, from a kind of an outside perspective, it seems like such a very small symbolic gesture, but people talk about how really important it is for them to see what they understand is that they see themselves in public space and that they see a space being carved out. And I think Squamish, Terrace, BC, right? Lots of small communities are taking that up. And I guess I would say that what's important about that is that it's not the stopping point. It's not like, oh, we've put the rainbow crosswalk in and now we've reached inclusion. But I think it's an important gesture and and people take it seriously. Yeah, I think it was either in Abbotsford or Chilliwack where the city decided not to put it in. It was very uh, political, but someone on private property painted it on themselves with overwhelming public support. Yeah, I saw that. That was great. Yeah. Wondering if you can talk a little bit about your research that you're doing that you're doing now. Yeah, well, I'm involved in that project. And then I'm starting up a teaching fellowship in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences in January. And the work that I want to undertake there is really to get a better sense of the literature of student resilience and learn more about what kinds of practices are happening in other SFU classrooms 
across Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. I hear from my students that the projects that I assign are unique. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but I expect that there are lots of tools that faculty are giving students, and maybe part of the issue is uh, that we as faculty need to be more explicit about the fact that they are actually tools, but really just investigating what's been written and talked about in terms of student resilience, what kind of work is being done in education, because I'm sure that it is being done in education, and then thinking about how we can apply that in our own faculty. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Tiffany. Thanks, Em. Thank you again to Tiffany Miller-Mirdal for joining us on this week's episode. If you want to read the Metropolis report that she references in the interview, we've left a link to it in the show description. Additionally, you can also learn more about Women in Cities International by checking out their website. There's a link to that in the show description as well. That's all for this week. Join us in the new year on Below the Radar. <laughs>